Welcome to Foibles, where my mom and I record conversations we have anyway. I'm Zoe. I'm Zoe's mom. Oh yeah, that's right. I have a name. It's Frida. <laughs> Welcome back to uh, Jane Austen, part three. We'll be discussing today, mostly the novel Pride and Prejudice. I don't know. I almost think, like, do we need more talk about Pride and Prejudice? Because it's, like, it's been so talked about, so gone over. I think that the thing that we're going to do today that will hopefully add some interest to the conversation is that we read this in conjunction with Sense and Sensibility and, of course, the research that my mom did on Jane Austen's life, but also her writing techniques. And so hopefully we'll find something kind of meaty in there about the evolution of her style and the compare and contrast of the two novels. I mean, I really feel like that... I I, I don't know if we could say it's the pinnacle of her style, but it certainly is the pinnacle of the novel at the time and... She created, with Pride and Prejudice, really the new novel. And it's been done over and over and over in that way, that the way she writes, the point of view of the narrator. Of course, the love story has you know, been done over and over and over again so many times. It's just such an important book. It is so important and so great, and it deserves its place. And it's always great when you hit that one, because I've read a lot of, oh, we're going to read the classics. And I'll read a book and I'll go, God, this is terrible. I don't think this would be published today. I think it's so terrible. But at the time, it was so important. Joseph Conrad. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> boring. You know, they're just so boring and, and whatever. I think some of Henry James don't think it would be published today. Uh, yet with all the competition and all the great books that are out there. I don't, I, I don't think it's of the quality some of his later works. It's just too... Now, scholars will disagree with me and I'm sure... Be, shaking fists at me and I'm sorry. It's just my opinion. It's just how I feel about it. But this one deserves its place and her work is so layered. Uh, and layered in what ways? I guess we should talk about that. We should talk about the characters. Well, we could give some examples, I think, of one of the things that Austin abhorred was the practice in novels of creating this moralistic world where there is all good and all bad. A person is good or a person is bad. That's it. And there's no complexity to the characters, uh, no ambiguity. And in Pride and Prejudice, every single character can arguably have a light and a dark and up and a down. Or at least that their behavior, as reprehensible as it may be, has a reason or basis that is that any human being can understand and relate to. Sometimes you have to dig a little bit for it, right? <laughs> so starting out with uh, Lizzie and Darcy. Lizzie's easy, fairly easy to understand. I think she's, she's so modern. She's a woman who has her own mind. She's intelligent. She is uh, self-initiated. And within the society that she lives in and at her level of class, she has agency, as much agency as it's possible for her to have. And she exercises it. She won't marry except for love, but she is aware of the financial repercussions of, of various matching up and so forth. And it isn't, I guess it's incorrect to say she won't marry but for love. She will marry for the right reasons, but love must be part of it. So I think that she is sensible enough to know that she can't just marry any dude. 
but it's got to be someone who's suitable and who she loves. Would you agree with that? So she is often connected with the prejudice because throughout the book, she is anti-Darcy. She meets him. He gives a bad impression. She sticks by that impression until actual solid evidence comes before her and she begins to change her mind and her feelings. So she's not prejudiced to the point that a lot of people are biased to the point where you put evidence in front of them and they deny it. She's not a truther. (laughs) (laughs) But she, where does this prejudice emanate from? If you look at the book, she first meets Darcy at a ball. And the first thing she hears him say pretty much, one of the first things is that he's not gonna ask her to dance because she's not enough to tempt him. And she overhears this. He doesn't know that she hears it. She overhears it. And I would say that from the beginning of the book, her pride creates the prejudice that leads to all of the intricacy, complexity of the courtship and their falling in love. Yeah, I would agree. And I do think that pride and prejudice in this sense are inextricable from each other right and as as, going back to the first episode we did talk about the origin of that title and so and i read a quote from cecilia where it came from which supports that so 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 she's got her pride and her prejudice and then there's darcy who basically he is raised with the principles of the time which is okay this is your place this is your role and you are expected to adhere to it. So you're going to only socialize with the right kind of people. You will marry correctly. And basically, if somebody goes around all the time saying, God, you're so great. And you don't ever hear anything else. Oh, you're so handsome. Oh, you're so good. Oh, you're so smart. You know, Or, oh, you're landed gentry at the very top 1% of the population. You just don't get a, a smack in the face of reality. And... You probably find that boring, not that interested in other people. Right, and and Darcy, give give your take on Darcy's neurotypicality. <laughs> yeah, so if we are getting into Mr. Darcy, he's certainly proud and, you know, educated, smart guy, uh, you know, witty. Tall. Tall. He's very principled. You find out later that he's actually can be very kind and generous, et cetera, et cetera. And so you kind of wonder where he's coming from. And you do think he's kind of an asshole at the beginning of the book. And he kind of, he's not, not, like a, he's not, not an asshole. He acts rude. He's rude. Yeah, he's rude. I actually think, and th- I'm not saying this to absolve him because I think it's a flaw in his character, which we've, as we've talked about. Okay, I'm going to, I'm going to interrupt there. I don't think it's a flaw in his character, because character to me might have is your fundamental being. I think it's a flaw in his behavior and in his in the way he has been acculturated. Fair enough. That's and that's... the reason I say this for those I, we're not going to hide the ball because we all know how this story goes. Because in the end, when Lizzie offers him the one thing that he's always needed, is the discomfort of facing the world and how you are to the larger world, not just your tiny rich circle where you're cost, you're in the bubble. But she brings him to some extent outside the bubble to so what people see when he's there and the way he behaves. And he takes it and even though it pierces him and it's really hard, 
and really painful for him, he actually meets it and changes. Yeah, you're right. I was using character and sort of a broad sweeping yeah. how, how this character is. Yeah, I, did, um, I just wanted to say that because... And yeah. you, you're using character in the more uh, Austin use of the, what the word would mean. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Um, what, I, what I came to think of his personality, especially after rereading the novel again and then re-watching Colin Firth's portrayal in the BBC series, was... I, I think he's really shy, almost to the point of like social anxiety and awkwardness, and that a lot of what comes across, he certainly has pride because he speaks to things like, I might feel differently now, but I thought I was better than other people. And so he certainly has pride, but I think he just has a lot of social awkwardness, a lot of shyness, and he doesn't know how to talk to new people. He doesn't like it. Colin Firth really taps into that version of Darcy. Yeah, because he's great with the people he knows well, Mm -hmm. for the most part. I mean, reflected by the way the servant at the house, who knew him from a child, speaks of him, how easy he is, how kind he is. So you could see him, you know, really being able to flow with people where he, not only he knows them really well, but he feels safe. Yeah. Being rich doesn't in any way insulate you from the internal demons, emotional demons that one may have. And... I guess one of the hard things about pride is that, using that word, you know, oh, I'm proud of you. Oh, I'm so proud of my son. But you're not allowed, I'm really proud of myself. So is that how he's proud? Or is he proud in the way that I'm better than everybody else? And then if we look at it, is he better than everybody else? He kind of (laughs) is. True. You know, I mean, and, and we think that somebody who's then our values is then if you're modest about it or at least fake modest then that's good yeah and so i think i think if you combine the social awkwardness with the idea of pride that i mean he is better educated he you know he probably does ride a horse better than most people i mean he's had the training he's had the opportunities he's really good looking he's in the upper stratosphere and we do think people who are successful, even if they're born into it, even today, they tend to carry more cachet with us. Yeah. I, with us, I mean as a culture, than somebody who isn't. Well, and he, he you know, quote unquote, does, sort of does good with his wealth in the sense that he's a good, as we've said, good master, good landowner, whatever. Right. And as those characters in the novel tell us, like, oh, he's great, he's really fair, he always cares about our affairs, things like that. So he's good and he knows it. Right, exactly. And those were the principles he was raised with. The other aspect I would like to bring up, which we have not talked about this, to delve into Darcy's background and why he's so stiff. Mm -hmm. I wonder about his father. Mm -hmm. Because he's the best man who ever lived. Okay, we say that. But what's interesting is that, that the father really loved Wickham. Right. Now, just... Real quick, Wickham was the son of the father's steward. And a steward is really, like, if you talk about anybody on the estate and those workers, number one top guy, like the vice president. I mean, this is the person who runs the whole shebang and then reports to the owner. So they're the hands-on person, and they're very, very well paid. Uh, So Wickham actually came from, this is not a poor little working laborer guy. He was a guy who was the son of a man who had very high status and a high income. Yeah, and for those of you who may not remember, in the novel, Wickham shows up as like a soldier that comes to town. He's very handsome and charming. He charms Lizzie. He charms the whole family. And then he turns out to be kind of a bad guy later, and he has bad blood with 
Darcy. Right, he has bad blood because he tried to seduce Darcy's sister and take her off and marry her for her money. Right. And she was only like 15. Right. Uh, and he's a grown man. So it was, you know. And of course, she was very, very trusting. And also, she knew Wickham from the family, and the father really loved Wickham and he had set him up to go into the church and have this rich living and he'd been all set up by the father to be taken care of yeah and he and he paid for his education to go to Oxford or someplace so that was only high class people did that and Wickham pissed everything away he whored around while he was in school he uh, after the father died he didn't want to go into the church he just said give me the money give me three thousand pounds I think it was and I'll be off and I don't want anything to do with going into the clergy and Darcy pays him off and in the TV show they indicate that Darcy has this kind of sour feeling toward Wickham throughout the whole thing because of they indicate because of his bad behavior that Darcy's like he's working away he's studying he's being a good boy and uh, Wickham is being a bad boy it's interesting because they say they played from when they were very young I guess what I'm just asking is is part of Darcy's thing that the father actually related to Wickham better because Wickham was charming. Wickham knew how to get around. Wickham was a user. He wasn't necessarily always sincere, but he knew how to get around the father and the father favored him and Darcy knew differently. And yet in a way his place was usurped a little bit in his father's heart perhaps. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's part of why that dis-ease with new people and so forth both created maybe a bit of a rift with his father because maybe his father didn't get why why he was not smooth with the ladies and going to balls and being the you know and at the same time maybe it possibly engendered some of it that he never kind of felt secure i could see that i think that's actually a very insightful uh thing to bring up because yeah sort of textually speaking when they discuss Darcy's father and Wickham there's they don't you're not given really any interpretation you just kind of come away with wow Darcy's father was a really great guy he must have just kind of been oblivious and like really open-hearted to what Wickham was doing or you know something like that but actually I think digging deeper than that is what Jane Austen would do because she creates complex characters right I mean just you know who knows we don't hear anything about Darcy's mother at all so you know we could only just like make stuff up about that Uh, and it's interesting because that Wickham you know I I don't like nobody likes Wickham I mean you just it's I don't know if it's possible to like Wickham but trying to see where wherein lies the complexity of Wickham Mm -hmm. is there any there and you know you kind of look at he's like the Lucy Steele of this situation He's got no money now. Well, he spent all his money, and it's his own fault, true. Yeah. But, you know, he's in a society. He's trying to make his way. And he's been brought up as a child, like, quote-unquote, equal to Darcy. But Darcy's going to inherit the land. You know, Darcy's like the older brother, if you will. He's going to get it all. And Wickham is just, you know, yeah, he's provided for like a younger son. But there's ultimately jealousy, I would imagine. A great deal of jealousy. Yeah, there's that fundamental economic inequality between the two of them that really isn't quote unquote fair to their treatment. And he's been enabled by Darcy's father yeah. his whole life when he was in college and stuff. He wasn't cut off or censured or anything. Right, right, exactly. So now now he's just doing more of the same. He comes in, breezes into town, and he starts talking shit about Darcy. And he's telling everybody, oh yeah, well, wait a minute. Well, I guess this is what's clever. And she's very clever in showing this is that he feels it out first. He has a chat with Lizzie, and he goes, oh, Darcy, what do you think of him? And as soon as he hears that she doesn't like him, 
and she thinks he's proud and haughty and so on and so forth. He leaps on it and he's agreeing with her and then he starts telling her and fueling her point of view with how misused he was by Darcy that in fact he says Darcy um, just cut him off. He doesn't say he asked for the money and Darcy gave it to him. He says Darcy just took away this living that he was expected to have and boy he really would have loved to be a curate and uh, have this living. Yeah, and this is another point where, again, uh, Elizabeth is a great protagonist, and she's sort of like our avatar in the book. She's Joe in Little Women. Yeah, and she's everything including, like, sensible enough and pragmatic enough that we can really sympathize with her and stuff, but she's not a perfect character, and in this instance, uh, if she were really being entirely reasonable and sensible, which I think her father points out later, why would she believe this like random stranger guy coming in who's just like you know kind of cute and and fun and then all like immediately upon acquaintance without any trust or intimacy Mm. built he's shit talking this other guy and not only to lizzie but he events once he learns that everybody kind of thinks darcy's rude and they don't care for him he's spreading it to everybody and we should talk a little bit about lizzie's father he he's an interesting character because He's obviously very smart and insightful, and he's got really great gimlet eye to, to human foibles, and he really brings it to bear, and he's always uh, kind of really getting amused by people, but he's so distant in his observation. He's so objective. And passive, even. Yeah, that he doesn't he doesn't participate in, in the family life. He doesn't participate in what a father should be doing. He's got five daughters and the estate is entailed away. And what entailed basically means is that some ancestor way back when decided that they all, they wanted to keep the land together. And the one of the ways they kept the land together and in the family supposedly, because I guess the family's only the male line, is that they would say, okay, only the old eldest male heir inherits everything. So not just the land and the house, but also the money for the most part, there might be like small pieces taken away, uh, taken out to give to like younger sons and daughters for dowries, but but you need the money to keep up the land. So you, know, you need that capital in there. So then what will happen is then the eldest son would get it. And then supposedly the idea is the eldest son, then the eldest son, then the eldest son. Well, if there are no sons or no children, then it zags off to the brother. Or to the nearest and, and male down, And then down to the nephew and then it just kind of keeps zigzagging out to, to like you said, the nearest male relative of the next generation or the same generation. So that's what's happened here is it came to, uh, and she hints at this in the novel, it came to Mr. Bennett's father, uh, brother. And then the brother, no, it came to Mr. Bennett. And then... Because Mr. Bennett didn't have any male heirs. Yeah, male heirs. It would have gone to his brother, but his brother's dead. And so instead it's going to... Is that guy's Mr. Collins' son, yeah, his cousin. Yeah, and what's what's really interesting is that um, Mr. Collins. Well, I think is is what's interesting is is that a little again a little bit of Jane Austen's family is coming in. Mr. Bennett has the name Bennett. Mr. Collins, who is the son of his brother, and usually you take the name of your father. You don't have is Collins. So these two brothers have different last names. So my what might potentially actually be the case is that Mr. Bennett, like Jane Austen's eldest brother, was adopted by uh. another uh, line in the family. 
and whose name last name was Bennett and of course he would take their last name so like with Jane Austen I believe it was Knight her brother was adopted by another branch of the family who didn't have a male heir and he took the name their last name which is Knight and then he inherited two estates so I'm thinking that that's why they have different last names interesting okay uh, and so because it's not it's not Mr. Bennett's sister Right, that this guy is the son of. So Mr. Collins comes into town, so he's going to inherit the land once Mr. Bennett dies, the house and the land, and Mrs. Bennett and her daughters are going to be out. Right. Depending and, on what he may decide to do. Right. And so this is where we come in as uh, readers, and we're often very kind of sympathetic to the father because he's the one who really he's... sees the quirks and neuroticisms of the people around him, and he makes commentary on it and things like that. And he respects his daughter. He doesn't respect his wife, but he respects his daughter, at least two of his daughters. Right. Is know. permissive and allows them to, you know, have free reign with books and independence and things like that. And education, yeah. But he's not really concerned with the existential issues of the family like he should be. And Right. The one that is concerned with all the existential issues and survival of her daughters and everything is Mrs. Bennett, who's often... Annoying I mean, as shit. <laughs> she's, in, she's neurotic, she's hysterical, and yet on second reading, you know, in our she, case... She's the one who's protecting her daughters, and she's the one who really loves all of her daughters to varying degrees. I mean, she's, she's like irritable and like, you know, Kitty, stop coughing up here, bothering my nerves. Poor Kitty can't cough, you know, and she, she, uh, and she can be critical and all that. But when it comes down to it, she accepts her daughters. She's all about them doing well and being okay and having a place to live and not being poor. So it isn't like she's a social climber, like she wants her for herself to be, uh, up, go up the rungs. She, if she wants any social climbing to happen, it's for the benefit of her daughters. That one daughter would be taken care of well, and then she'll be able to help her sisters. And when it comes down to it, as we learn later, that one of her young daughters, who gets 15, Lydia, runs off with Wickham, and he doesn't plan to marry her because she doesn't have any money, uh, and ultimately he is forced to marry Lydia. The mother is like, I want to see my darling daughter. She's forgiving. It's and and it's almost and, couched like she doesn't get that that something wrong happened here. But she's like going, it doesn't matter. Yeah. The idea is that Lydia would have been so disgraced because she ran away with someone she's not married to, and the rest of the family is like, oh, goddamn, and she's gonna be. Maybe other parts of their family would disown her. They wouldn't let her. They wouldn't see her. And well, it's also about family in terms of society. And it's who you are connected to. And if you're connected to somebody who ran away and is ruined, then it, unless you have a lot of money, which they don't have. I mean, if they all had like $10,000 or 10,000 pounds to bring to a marriage, they, won't, they wouldn't be able to marry the very best people, so to speak. But they could still make very good marriages. Right. Because the money would kind of erase it. It would just be kind of a taint. But if you don't have any money, or very little money, and your sister is ruined, now you are connected to a ruined person, and that, that redounds on you. And that's how families worked. Right. Right. And But the mother... She actually has a lot of our sympathy and in a sense like more of a modern sensibility where she still loves her. She doesn't care. Like Yeah, she wants to see her. Yeah. And she wants to see him and she's going to accept him. Yeah. And and uh, as, long, as as it turned out right, yes, yeah, she she can be feckless. Yes, she can be insensible to things. But ultimately, she is she is the advocate for her children. And Mr. Bennett isn't. He, you know, 
and he you know Lydia runs away and you know he, as a father he would have been should have been watching out he let her go to Bath because she was making such a stink about it. And that's where... Uh, and he wanted the house to be quiet. <laughs> right. And so and so instead of like really making sure that she was well chaperoned, and, which you would do with a 15-year-old. I mean, any 15-year-old, you, uh, you wouldn't be going... Even today, you wouldn't be going, oh, yeah, you're going off with the colonel's wife and, and, and with yeah. the regiment. Your party friends. Go ahead. Yeah. And I know that you're wild. Yeah. You know, you would look into it at least. And that kind of thing. Not that I'm in any way agreeing with the uh, the point of view of the time that a woman is ruined because she had sex with somebody. Right. You know, out of wedlock. So, you know, right there. But what I'm saying is he's not... He does do the very least he can do to introduce his daughters into a society where they can meet eligible men, as his wife points out. Because at the time, women could not go and introduce themselves to anybody. So if he doesn't first go to Bingley's house or, you know, in, in this case Bingley and introduce himself and make his acquaintance, then the the women can't have anything to do with Bingley. So that's how it works. So it's up to him and he's not doing it. Yeah, which really I I think also puts into context the very first scene where Mrs. Bennett's freaking out about how he won't go and introduce himself to Mr. Bingley and everything. Who is the young the, the young man of fortune who must be in want of a wife. Right. And that's like how some of the, the dynamics play out among the characters. And I don't know, do you think this is a place where we can talk about Mr. Collins? Can we bring him Mr. Yeah, Collins? why not? <laughs> so now the cousin that um, is going to inherit is Mr. Collins. And Mr. Collins is one of the most interesting characters. He's kind of like the uh, a benevolent Uriah Heep, if you've read uh, David Copperfield. He's oily. He's in, he, he's he's ingratiating. Fa- fakely ingratiating. He's you know he's just like you can just see him. Uh, and the actor who plays him in the BBC series is perfection. He he just embodies Mr. Collins, and Mr. Collins is. But if you but he's so he's like Mrs. Bennett. He's so annoying, and he's so unattractive. And he comes to the house and says, "Well, I'll marry one of these daughters if they're hot enough," you know. And he had heard report of how attractive they were, so he decides, "Well, I'll marry one of them, and then that'll make it up to the family because then the house will stay in the family." And essentially, he does this because his patroness, Lady Catherine de Bourgh, who is Darcy's aunt, and now she is nobility. And he has his curacy with her. And I may not be using quite the right word for because there are different levels of being a curate, but I'm just going to say curate. Um, with her. And so it's a very well paid. And he has a very nice house. And he's very well off. And now he's going to inherit this estate when Mr. Bennett dies. So Lady Catherine says, I want you to get, basically she says, I want you to get married. And he's like, oh, he's on it. Whenever Lady <laughs> Catherine, well, he's on it. Uh, and he thinks about Lady Catherine 24-7. So so basically it's it's a win for him because he could pick out and get a wife like in an instant. I used to go there, pick one out and, and, and propose. He doesn't have to court her. He doesn't have to go into society and find somebody and find somebody who's appropriate and get to know their family and he has to court her and it'll be months, you know. This way he knows the family, he knows these girls, he can pick one out. They're in need. And they're in need and they, and it's a win for them because then they're secured. I mean, the family is secured in terms of not being homeless or, you know, not being in poverty after Mr. Bennett dies because they'll 
be covered by this. Because people died pretty early. I don't know if you remember from our last episode, there's a passage that we read of dialogue where the characters are discussing, and they mention how she might live like 15 years, and like, oh my god, that's And she's so not long. yet 40. She's not yet 40. <laughs> so like, they're, you know, expecting someone to reasonably die around 55 or 50 or something like that it might seem a little bit silly but actually his death is not something to it's something reasonable to be thinking about yeah yeah exactly so anyway mr mr collins so the only fly in this ointment i think is that mr collins is supremely unattractive yeah I don't think it, I don't think the sisters would have been so opposed to it if he hadn't just been the way he is. He is. He's very unattractive. He's very phony. I always said fakely ingratiating. He's he's inflexible in his thinking. And he's boring. Yeah. It's very interesting that really there are five daughters, and so the the eldest is Jane, and then there's Elizabeth, and then there is Mary and Kitty and Lydia. Lydia being yours. So the middle one, Mary, doesn't get a whole lot of truck, but. I think that's unfair, the way Jane Austen sets her up. She's not pretty, but she actually, and they, in the TV show, they make her sound like, play, loves to play the piano, and they make her sound terrible and terrible singing. But in fact, in the book, they say she's rather good. In fact, she plays better than Lizzie. Yeah, the only thing that's kind of embarrassing about it or whatever is that she always chooses to play very solemn, like religious music when they want waltzes. Right, and, 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 and she does it too much. Right. She, you know, she, you know, she, <laughs> she hogs it a little yeah, she bit. She hogs it. So that's the embarrassing part. So she's actually good at that. And she's also very religious, and she loves, and she's moralistic. So basically, she sounds a lot like Mr. Collins. Yeah. So what's interesting is, of course, he goes for Jane, who is the, the most beautiful one. She's the beauty of the family. And uh, Mrs. Bennett says, no, 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 Mr. Bingley's going to marry Jane. They're, they've already decided that. So then he sets his sights on Lizzie because she's... The second most beautiful. <laughs> the second most beautiful one. And, and doesn't look at Mary, who actually is be the good match for him. Right. And so it shows his shallowness. That he's looking, he's looking for the beauty, and but then he'll also want somebody who will keep the house really well and will be able to work with the community. And the parson or curate's wife was expected to, you know, help people who are sick and nurse them and bring them food and be very involved in community activities and and mainly someone who Lady Catherine will like. And there's just no way, ultimately, in the long run. Lizzie would not rub Lady Catherine the wrong way because oh, Lady yeah. Catherine's a dictator. <laughs> oh, they clash head to head already. But of course, Mr. Collins, being the way he he's so inflexible in his thinking that he couldn't even comprehend that, that would happen. Yeah, everyone's going to bow down <laughs> Can't to Lady see Catherine. Her personality. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but what I think is what the point, kind of one of the points I wanted to talk about, is the fact that Mr. Collins is their first cousin. That's illegal in most states. Right. It would be considered incest, and I think that's very interesting. Because back then, no problem. I mean, the royal families of Europe were first cousins marrying right and left, which is why they had such a problem with hemophilia in some of the families because of the inbreeding in the family. But it was okay because they didn't have genetics at that time. So they weren't looking at that kind of closeness. They didn't feel like that was too close, having the same grandparents on one side of the family. And in that time, it's not quite as easy to maintain close familial bonds or you're not inherently going to know everyone so they've never met mr colin before even though he's their first cousin right you know right well there had been a, a, a apparently a disagreement of some sort between mr bennett and his brother right. and they hadn't talked but what's interesting is at the time even though you can marry first cousins who are related to you by blood by genetics that it would be too 
close or would be considered incestuous for a man to marry his wife's, like if his wife died and he was a widower, to marry his wife's sister. Mm. Even though they have no, no relation. relation at all. Interesting. Or, you know, if a stepsister and stepbrother got married, that would be incestuous, even though steps have no blood relation at all. Yeah. So that's another character who's, on a surface level reading, he's just this buffoon, and he is a buffoon. He's so funny. <laughs> and and uh, sort of dislikable. But if you really think about it, here's a guy. He's well set up. He's like Lucy Steele. He's like Mr. Wickham. But he's more successful, who's trying to just make it in society. And how many of us suck up to our bosses? <laughs> That's true. I mean, come on. <laughs> you know, oh, how's your little baby today? I don't really give a shit. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> There's indications, too. He's he's a simple guy with simple needs, even though he talks too much and is obnoxious. Yeah. He, he likes to garden. He's out in his garden every day. He's like, got bees. He's got bees, you know. He dotes on his wife in his own way, even yeah. though it's not something that we find attractive or desirable. Yeah, exactly, you know? <laughs> exactly. Again, the brilliance is that here's somebody who's ultimately got, maybe not a good character, but he is uh, a basically good citizen kind of guy. And he's principled, just not in the principles that we find, again, exciting or, comp- you know. Right. <laughs> and yet, <laughs> worthwhile. He, he's just, he, he wouldn't want to spend a minute with him. Yeah. <laughs> You know, and and then here's, um, and so that's what makes Elizabeth and Darcy such great characters is because they move so much. I mean, she, you know, she moves a lot in terms of getting over herself, Mm -hmm. and he moves a lot in terms of getting over himself. Yeah, and I think that's really actually quite rare to find in novels successfully. It's, It's really hard to write a good story about people that fundamentally change and change internally rather than people that you know overcome struggles or you know things happen to them right they lose all their money and then they claw their way back yeah yeah they go through emotional turmoil but you know don't necessarily fundamentally change as people or grow as people and they do in pride and Prejudice. right 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 well and i think uh, again another contrast that that i think is interesting where austin gives you something on the surface that really actually is is not exactly, when you delve down, you go, oh, okay, it's more complicated, or it's not really that, is that in the beginning, Lizzie says, I won't marry unless there's love. She wants. She doesn't say I won't marry money, but, you know, I won't consider it, but I won't marry unless there's love, and so I'll probably marry a poor man because I don't have any money to bring, so I'm not likely to get a rich husband. But he says, she says to you, Jane, you are so good and so beautiful. And of course, she's already met Bigley, no doubt you will marry a rich man because, you know, you're so deserving. Uh, and um, so they're all expecting her to marry that Bingley because Bingley's like smitten with her immediately. What's very interesting is that Jane, it, her, the way she holds herself is that, well, she'll marry appropriately. Yeah, she'd like to have love, but she's, she's, very, she's kind of practical. Uh, so and she for, wants to do her duty by her family. Right. Which, it's not something Lizzie seems to be so concerned she, about. She's not at all. And, yeah. yeah. And so Li- Jane is actually uh, very interesting because she's going to do her duty, but she doesn't like make a statement. But you can tell that Jane is not going to marry where she doesn't have uh, a predilection for the person. And she points out to Lizzie very well that when Mr. Collins 
proposes to Lizzie, which is a hilarious, hilarious scene. And she doesn't want to marry him, and he keeps pushing and pushing and pushing. Oh no, like, you can't mean that. Oh no. Yeah, oh, you're you're a, a lady of, of fashion. Would all, always teases a man. She was, you she must was, demure. Yeah, you'd, I know it's a tradition to you, reject me once or twice or even three times. Yeah, but you'll accept me. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And she and so when he finally gets that she's rejected him, he goes off in a huff. And he stays with Lizzie's friend, Charlotte Lucas. And Charlotte is apparently older and considered not very attractive, older like 27. And, um, right. <laughs> and you know, that was, that's getting pretty old in those days. And so basically, she decides she's going to snag, now that you know, Lizzie doesn't want him, she's going to snag Mr. Collins and marry him. And she does. She compliments him and calms him down and... And he needs a wife right away. And she's yeah. perfect because she comes from a family, even though they're in trade, they have money. Yeah. And so she's genteel enough. Yeah, and I get the sense that uh, he was so embarrassed by the re- rejection yes. of Lizzie that he needs to overcorrect really quickly and yeah. so that he can kind of get over the, his pride being shot and not have to go back to Lady Catherine de Bourgh. And, yeah, yeah, say, oh, I got rejected. Yeah. So he's going to marry her, and, and that's like within a day. And so what's interesting is that Lizzie really, again, this is her prejudice and her maybe her pride as well, but she really looks down her nose at Charlotte. She gets angry and actually sort of cuts Charlotte off a little bit because she's decided to marry Mr. Collins when Lizzie has decided Mr. Collins is so unworthy and that she can't possibly marry him for love, which she isn't because she only knew him a day, but that she's chosen this very practical situation where she will fulfill his needs he will meet her needs within these, this practical realm. It won't be a matter of the heart. And Jane says to her, Lizzie, you, you don't take into account differences in temperament in people. And that this is, you know, this will work for her. And that not everything that works for you is going to work for other people. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's very interesting because Jane just really sails. She has a lot of pain when Mr. Bingley leaves, when Darcy kind of convinces him that Jane doesn't really like him. And Jane, she's got that quiet suffering, but she, interestingly, is holding to her heart. Whereas, and I'm contrasting this to the fact, Jane never talks about money or anything like that or or what Bingley has. But Lizzie, once she's starting to get out of her prejudice, after she stops really hating Mr. Darcy, and she's heard that maybe he's not as bad as she thought, and then... After that, she sees Pemberley. And then later, when they are going to be together, and Jane says, well, when did you start loving him? And she says, well, maybe it was when I saw his his massive estates at Pemberley, which is so interesting because maybe, you know, she's cracking, and you can see in Austen's narration the bit-by-bit cracking away of her antithesis toward Darcy. But it really is kind of when she sees that place that it turns maybe to her, maybe I want to marry him. Yeah. Because she says, of all this, I could have been mistress. Mm -hmm. So Lizzie is not immune. And the outset, we're going, oh, she's all about love. She's Marianne. Well, Jane is almost more like the Marianne in Sense and Sensibility because she really is just going to marry for pure love. And she never really kind of mentions or brings up this guy's money. Everybody else around her is talking about it like a blue streak. Whereas Lizzie... She does consider it, and it's so good because it shows not the hypocrisy, but the difficulty she has in applying that point of view to her inward because she's looking at Darcy going, okay, yeah, and he, and he's appropriate, and now I'm finding out he doesn't have a bad character, and he really is a good, generous person. So since he's good, well, maybe I'll fall in love with him. It's just an element in her calculus 
and how she feels. I get the sense too that it's a little bit of a maturing in her character as well, where maybe she suddenly she's confronted with these estates and everything, but she realizes what are the things that she loves? She loves to walk in beautiful scenery and be able to be independent and all these things that obviously having these means and resources and this land and stuff would give her. And, and take so, care of her family. Yeah. That is when that hits home. I think I should point out at this time is that we were saying that Darcy was the richest of all of her characters, 10,000 pounds a year. So I did. I just looked on Google and just to see, well, how much would 10,000 pounds in 1800 be? It's probably even more than this, but today in terms of purchasing power. So Darcy has an income of about $1 billion a year. <laughs> yeah. So that's yes. how rich he is. It's almost like he can't spend it fast enough. So so she's going to know that too. And then there's, there's this Pemberley comes up and it, and it becomes the, the concretized vision of this vast wealth that he has. So I just think got to take that in, into consideration. Also, when he comes in and he says to her, and I'm not absolving him because he was an asshole and she was right what she said to him. One of the best scenes in literature, Evs. Yeah, so um, we're jumping back from Elizabeth seeing Mr. Darcy's estate for the first time to the middle of the book where he actually proposes to her. And, and she's not expecting it because she's in the midst of her antipathy to him. And he, in spite of himself, <laughs> yeah. she says, he's grown to desire her and... He ardently loves and admires her. That's right. And he can't hold back. And so he's almost angry when he goes to propose to her, but he does. And he basically tells her that in spite of her family, he wants to marry her. And you know, the fact is that her connections are so much lower than his, which is true. And she has family in trade. And not only that, Mr. and Mrs. Gardner, who are in trade, they're genteel enough. But he, again, his prejudice is he's learned that people in trade are boorish and rough and, you know, pretty low class. Also, her mother, who's running around at parties, talking out loud about how Mr. Bingley has three to four, and when Jane marries him, and they're not even engaged. Yeah. You know, and then all my other daughters will be thrown in the way of rich men. And she's saying this, like, really loud, and she's a little bit drunk. She gets tipsy. And so she's like, wah, she's out there. And so Darcy is seeing this, and it's sort of like, oh, my God. You know, so he's going to marry into a family with a mother-in-law like that. And he's going to have to deal with her because she's going to come and visit them and stuff. So, yeah. you know, plus she'll be representing the family out in public, an embarrassment, yeah. you know. So there's that. And now um, Lydia hasn't run away with Wickham yet, so we don't have that issue coming up. But basically that her connections are so much lower. She doesn't have any money, so she doesn't have any, like, thing to bring in to contribute to the estate and to the family line going forward in terms of finances so there's that and so he says well in spite of all that you stand above it and I love and admire you and then she just goes off on him yeah. and she lets him have it basically saying no and he says well maybe if I had hidden my objections to your family you, you wouldn't be turning me down you wouldn't be so huffy and she says had you behaved in a more gentlemanlike manner, I might have felt some compunction about the way I expressed my denial to you. And I think that is, right there, is the crux of the novel. Actually, do you want to read it?
must allow me to tell you how ardently I admire and love you. Okay, so Mr. Darcy has suddenly come upon Elizabeth while she's alone to talk to her. After the silence of several minutes, he came towards her in an agitated manner and thus began. In vain I have struggled. It will not do. My feelings will not be repressed. You must allow me to tell you how ardently I admire and love you. Elizabeth's astonishment was beyond expression. She stared, colored, doubted, and was silent. This he considered sufficient encouragement, and the avowal of all that he felt and had long felt for her immediately followed. He spoke well, but there were feelings besides those of the heart to be detailed, and he was not more eloquent on the subject of tenderness than on pride. His sense of her inferiority, of its being a degradation, of the family obstacles which judgment had always opposed to the inclination, were dwelt on with a warmth, which seemed due to the consequence he was wounding, but was very unlikely to recommend his suit. In spite of her deeply rooted dislike, she could not be insensible to the compliment of such a man's affections, and though her intentions did not vary for an instant, she was at first sorry for the pain he was to receive, till roused to resentment by his subsequent language, she lost all compassion in anger. She tried, however, to compose herself, to answer him with patience when he should have done. He concluded with representing to her the strength of that attachment which, in spite of all his endeavors, he had found impossible to conquer, and with expressing his hope that it would now be rewarded by her acceptance of his hand. As he said this, she could easily see that he had no doubt of a favorable answer. He spoke of apprehension and anxiety, but his countenance expressed real security. Such a circumstance could only exasperate further, and when he ceased, the color rose into her cheeks, and she said, In such a case as this, I believe the established mode to express a sense of obligation for the sentiments avowed, however unequally they may be returned. It is natural that obligation should be felt, and if I could feel gratitude, I would now thank you. But I cannot. I have never desired your good opinion, and you have certainly bestowed it most unwillingly. I am sorry to have occasioned pain to anyone. It has been most unconsciously done, however, and I hope will be of short duration. The feelings which you tell me have long prevented the acknowledgement of your regard, can have little difficulty in overcoming it after this explanation. Mr. Darcy, who was leaning against the mantelpiece, with his eyes fixed on her face, seemed to catch her words with no less resentment than surprise. His complexion became pale with anger, and the disturbance of his mind was visible in every feature. He was struggling for the appearance of composure, and would not open his lips till he believed himself to have attained it. The pause was to Elizabeth's feelings dreadful. At length, in a voice of forced calmness, he said, and this is all the reply which I am to have the honor of expecting. I might perhaps wish to be informed why, with so little endeavor at civility, I am thus rejected, but it is of small importance. I might as well inquire, she replied, why, with so evident a design of offending and insulting me, you chose to tell me that you liked me against your will, against your reason, and even against your character." Was not this some excuse for incivility if I was uncivil? But I have other provocations. You know I have. Had not my own feelings decided against you, 
had they been indifferent or had they even been favorable? Do you think that any consideration would tempt me to accept the man who has been the means of ruining, perhaps forever, the happiness of a most beloved sister? As she pronounced these words, Mr. Darcy changed color, but the emotion was short and he listened without attempting to interrupt her while she continued. I have every reason in the world to think ill of you. No motive can excuse the unjust and ungenerous part you've acted there. You dare not, you cannot deny that you have been the principal, if not the only means of dividing them from each other, of exposing one to the censure of the world for caprice and instability, the other to its derision for disappointed hopes, and involving them both in misery of the acutest kind. She paused and saw with no slight indignation that he was listening with an air which proved him wholly unmoved by any feeling of remorse. He even looked at her with a smile of affected incredulity. "'Can you deny that you have done it?' she repeated. With assumed tranquility, he then replied, "'I have no wish of denying that I had did everything in my power "'to separate my friend from your sister, "'or that I rejoice in my success. "'Towards him I have been kinder than towards myself.' Elizabeth disdained the appearance of noticing this civil reflection, but its meaning did not escape, nor was it likely to conciliate her. But it is not merely this affair, she continued, on which my dislike is founded. Long before it had taken place, my opinion of you was decided. Your character was unfolded in the recital which I received many months ago from Mr. Wickham. On this subject, what can you have to say? In what imaginary act of friendship can you defend yourself, or under what misrepresentation can you here impose upon others? Yes, you take an eager interest in that gentleman's concerns, said Darcy in a less tranquil tone and with heightened color. Who that knows what his misfortunes have been can help feeling an interest in him? His misfortunes, repeated Darcy contemptuously. Yes, his misfortunes have been great indeed. And of your infliction, cried Elizabeth with energy, you have reduced him to his present state of poverty, comparative poverty. You have withheld the advantages which you must know to have been designed for him. You have deprived the best years of his life of that independence which was no less his due than his desert. You have done all this, and yet you can treat the mention of his misfortunes with contempt and ridicule. And this, cried Darcy, as he walked with quick steps across the room, is your opinion of me. This is the estimation in which you hold me. I thank you for explaining it so fully. My faults, according to this calculation, are heavy indeed. But perhaps, added he, stopping in his walk and turning towards her, these offenses might have been overlooked had not your pride been hurt by my honest confession of the scruples that had long prevented my forming any serious design. These bitter accusations might have been suppressed had I, with greater policy, concealed my struggles and flattered you into the belief of my being impelled by unqualified, unalloyed inclination, by reason, by reflection, by everything. But disguise of every sort is my abhorrence. Nor am I ashamed of the feelings I related. They were natural and just. Could you expect me to rejoice in the inferiority of your connections, to congratulate myself on the hope of relations whose condition in life is so decidedly beneath my own? Elizabeth felt herself growing more angry every moment, yet she tried to the utmost to speak with composure when she said, 
You are mistaken, Mr. Darcy, if you suppose that the mode of my declaration affected me in any other way than as it spared me the concern which I might have felt in refusing you, had you behaved in a more gentlemanlike manner. <laughs> Zingo! <laughs> You're mistaken, Mr. Darcy. The mode of your declaration merely spared me any concern I might have felt in refusing you had you behaved in a more gentlemanlike manner. It's kind of funny to me because obviously the way that Darcy presented his proposal really isn't, you know, the, awkward. the right way to propose to someone. And even though he's like, oh, would you have me pretend and kind of lie about my feelings? It's, dude, it's still not a good way to propose to a girl. Like, you can acknowledge those things later or something. But that's like, not, That's not a kind and loving way to do it. And no. it's not a way to get what you want either. Yeah. So it shows that he really is awkward. He's a jerk. But I'm also a little bit charmed by the idea that he thinks it's very romantic for him to be like, I had all these objections, but look, this is how much I yeah, want you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And, and I, I think it just beautifully shows he's just privileged. Yeah. And, and out of that privilege, he, of course, expected it would go his way. And he's shocked. And he's shocked into a state of such confusion, ultimately, that he actually changes. And what she says about his behavior gets to him. Yeah, he reflects on it. He writes her a letter and he responds to all the things she said. And in some ways, I mean, like in her accusation about Wickham, she's completely wrong. And so he tells her what actually happened. Um, but then in other cases, he's maybe even not quite repentant. But then he reflects even further. And then later in the book, he... He sees how changed, wrong he was. Yeah, he changes his mind and his behavior. Well, and the thing is the same with Lizzie, because I feel like that this scene is the beginning of the crack in her changing and also her changing in her feelings towards him. Because frankly, the way they're, the heatedness of their, they actually meet, they actually meet and connect, even though it's with friction and sparks. And it's so rare that you actually are able to connect with somebody else. Yeah, and as we said before, I think a lot of the root of her disdain for Mr. Darcy is the fact that she thinks he doesn't regard her at all. Like, right. His indifference rankles a lot. And so this is the part where she's like, oh, whoa. You like me. Oh, well. Yeah. And then you're like, hmm, you like <laughs> me, huh? And then you start thinking along that line. The other yeah. thing that happens is, you know, and she has to admit this ultimately after she's not being defensive, when the defensiveness drops down a little bit, right afterwards she begins to think about her family. Mm -hmm. And she's like, yeah, I mean, would she want to marry into that family? Got to, got to consider that. Yeah. So, and then as the novel goes on, because these this crack occurs, then his letter gets in, and she's able to consider that, and she's able to say, "Hmm, is he telling me the truth?" And then she ultimately decides, "Yeah, he is telling me the truth. You know, he's not making anything up about this." And and things go on, and then ultimately they meet again, and she's with her uh, uncle and aunt who are in trade, and they're doing a tour, and Darcy meets them, and I think very subtly we see that that also shifts for him and he sees these people are genteel these are not louts mm -hmm. that the family he would be marrying into actually has some educated and thoughtful and genteel people in it too yeah and he's really kind to them and gets to know them yeah it's not just that he you know he only cares about lizzie or something he spends time 
getting to know her family getting a little bit. Getting to know bit. her family. Some of, some of the family, anyway. <laughs> the family that she likes and yeah. respects. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's other <laughs> other family parts. And that's so crucial. And it and it's just, it's thrilling. And the BBC scene where they do it, uh, it's the best. It's the best one. We've we watched several versions of Pride and Prejudice, the one with uh, Laurence Olivier and Greer Garson from the mm-hmm. 40s, which is okay. It's good. It's fine for a Hollywood version. They, they do cut a lot of things out. And Melville Cooper plays Mr. Collins, and he does a really good job. He's an old-time actor. And then, you know, there's the one with Keira Knightley that you liked uh, at the time a lot because you were into Keira Knightley. Beautiful, walking through the fields and everything. Yeah, and she's kind of got the boyish, tomboyish quality, which is why I think she got cast in that role. Yeah. And, and the thing is, is you watch that, and you can't but hear the echoes of the BBC version in there. In the tonality of a lot of the actors, it's just so overwhelming. And the actors are good. And it's a Joe Wright production, so he does do a lot of visual pyrotechnics. And there's, I mean, Darcy's almost like a kind of a kind of a dark stalker guy, and he's not very handsome either. The guy, actor who plays mm-hmm. him, I don't think he's very good looking. I think I disagree, but I don't quite remember. Here, let me let me show you the picture. <laughs> I was very disappointed in the guy he cast for Darcy. So it's, I mean, he's a very good actor. Oh, it's Matthew McFadden, who's in who's in Succession. See, I think he's really handsome. But oh, interesting. Yeah, it's all all about taste. <laughs> So, yeah, so Matthew McFadden, who played uh, Darcy in that, he was a big disappointment to me. But, you know, he, he almost plays him like Heathcliff. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. And I think that's probably why the people in my young generation responded to that, because of the sort of the sweet, the windswept hair and the sort of like dark angst that yeah. he brings to the part. Yeah. But there's no comparison. Colin Firth, I feel like, really has the soul of Darcy from the books. And it's, yeah. it is that social awkwardness. I it just, is. I can't get over well, apparently, how that much that changed or elucidated my interpretation of the book. Yeah, because it's so great in his body language. Like when he bows, he's like, mm. you know, he's like, yeah. he's, he's real stiff. And, you know, you can tell, like, uh, there's a part in, at a dance where Mr. Collins comes up to him. And Mr. Collins is all like ingratiating, and he comes up and he's trying to schmooze up to Darcy, who he'd never met. And Lady Catherine de Bourgh is uh, Darcy's aunt. So basically, he is going, Oh, we have a, an acquaintance in common, Lady Catherine de Bourgh. And the last time I met her, I can give you the good news. Uh, a week ago, she was in perfect health. And Darcy's like, You know, they haven't been introduced. And, and so Collins is going against social convention. By just walking up to Darcy and introducing himself, that just was not done. Somebody who knew Collins and knew Darcy would have to bring Collins over and say, "I'd like to introduce you." And then, it, then it was okay for Collins to talk to him, especially since he's a, a social way down social inferior, which it might might be different if it was a man of his same rank, potentially come up and just talk to him, even though that would be even still a little bit out of whack and so it was to- so all of a sudden he's sitting there and he's blindsided by this guy who first of all has this weird affect and it's totally inappropriate and Darcy's like what the fuck do I do you know he's just kind of like totally taken off center and it's just Colin Firth acts that so well apparently his stiffness and his everything while they were acting the directors and they'd say okay that's good but do more do more. And he's going, I don't get this. Why is this attractive? <laughs> Colin Firth. Yeah, yeah, I don't get Why is this attractive? <laughs> it's all about that, that repressed. Mm. Yeah, I know. And Lizzie's getting to it and then explodes. And that's what's so great about the, the proposal scene is it explodes in the proposal scene, but not in a violent way. Mm-hmm. 
but in a you know very impassioned way and it allows her to meet with him and they actually then have a connection and a spark and then after that it's it's more opened up and they have they are actually able to have uh, converse with each other well and that's what I think I was trying to get at earlier that I didn't quite get to is mm-hmm. um, talking about how rare it is to find like a novel that really gets deep into characters changing fundamentally yes, in yes. and of themselves. But what I meant it even more is that it's even rarer to find one where the characters change e- each other or change together. They're, they're a catalyst. Or because of each other. It's it's not the plot. They it's catalyze the each characters. other. Yeah. It isn't like I lost all my money and now I change. It's like that this other person speaks to me somehow and is able to yeah. get through all my defenses and they actually catalyze it. I mean, he still does the work, and she still does the work in, yeah. internally, but it, it was that, that external energy from another person yeah. that made you see it. It's, it's, it and, and it happens. You know, It happens a lot of times. Sometimes like teachers are very important in that way, when they're actually mm-hmm. able to catalyze a child and say, you know, like in a way that they go, oh, I am smart. I can figure it out, or I can do this. You know? and, and teachers often have that impact. So it's that, that kind of thing. So I, I totally agree with you on that. Yeah, and it's just, I guess it's even so much rarer in a romance, uh, you know, genre of storytelling. Yeah, yeah, oftentimes it's it's just, oh, I can't have the person or whatever. Yeah, and that's why imitations and things that have come to being through the influence of Jane Austen's novels just can't compare a lot of the time is because it plays with all of the trappings and all of the surface mm. stuff. N- nobody, well, I won't say nobody. I'm sure I could come up with oh, a very good novel recommendation, yeah. but very few writers really get to the heart of what makes that romance. Well, you know, you're, you're talking about Jane Austen, who is the 1%. Yeah. She's in the 1% of, of, of artists. Mm-hmm. And so it's rare that you're going to get another artist who's going to write on the same topic who's as good as she is. Yeah. Well, and even Jane Austen herself, like reading Sense and Sensibility, the TLDR of our opinions on those two novels is you see her getting towards a lot of the things that she's going to achieve in Pride and Prejudice, but Sense and Sensibility just isn't as good, which is still not to say that it isn't better than most books that exist. <laughs> right. But the characters don't have that kind of richness, depth, and then like, interlocking relation to each other plus the structure and the writing i mean everything about pride and prejudice is a development yeah which is what artists need to do so we just thought we would end by telling you of course our favorite adaptations that we highly recommend which is we've already done it so we'll just repeat it again and then maybe give you some like fan fiction um recommendations that we really really recommend some of which you'll be very familiar with so obviously, you, you, we already said that the 1995 Colin Firth BBC series, I think it's five episodes, fantastic, buckets right along. And the adaptation is so good because it does add a, like a few little scenes, add some things that, you, that aren't in the book, that, but that fit perfectly mm-hmm. within the, the story. And I think it's even, even just texturally, like they might even be doing kind of a blow for blow of what happens in the scene and the dialogue even, but then like Colin Firth bringing his interpretation of the role and everything just adds so much to the, to the yeah. novel. And, the, and, and of course, the BBC Pride and Prejudice has that scene where he dives into the water. Right. Selfish, and then he walks out and then he's walking and he runs right into her and he's, he's got the wet shirt. He's the wet t-shirt. The, not t-shirt, but the wet, yeah, like white blouse. Yeah. yeah. And what's so funny is, what's so great is that um, later there was a statue 
Remember I sent that to you? Mm -hmm. There was a statue they did of Colin for the giant statue of Darcy. And it was a mobile exhibit. It would go to various places where they put it in, like, rivers. <laughs> and so there would be this Darcy coming half out of the water, awesome. like, in the in the show. I mean, it's just amazing. Look it up. See if you, you know, you might want... I'll, I'll look it up and see if I can find it. We'll put it in the show notes if I can find a link to it, a picture of it. It was fantastic. And then, uh, of course, then there's the 1995 Sense and Sensibility that was adapted by Emma Thompson, both the same year. So those are our totally recommendation. And then the fanfic... Well, the very best one. Our favorite. Bridget Jones' Diary. Yeah. 2001. Which is, of course, a book as well. So The um, book, the book, eh, not so much. But it's a modern-day adaptation of Pride and Prejudice, you know, with some things taken out and changed. But... Starring Colin Firth as Mr. Darcy. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. And, and he, Renee Zellweger. And yeah. Hugh Grant plays, like, the Wickham character. Yeah. It's great. It, it's very good. It's probably the movie that I've seen the most times. Just happens. It to just happen. never gets old. Yeah, it's so good. Yeah, and the use of the music and everything—it's just fantastic. I love it so much. And then one that we like—a four-part BBC series, Lost in Austin. I don't know if the, it's also a book, which I haven't read. Two thousand eight. Yeah, and starring um, Jemima Ruper, who is a redheaded sassy woman that we love yes um and this lost in austin adaptation is like really pride and prejudice fan fiction in the sense that the premise is she's a modern day woman who loves pride and prejudice it's her favorite story she has like this you know shitty boyfriend and a job that she hates and then there happens to be a magic portal in her bathroom that t- <laughs> takes her into the world of pride and prejudice and what's cool is is that the way she finds out about it is elizabeth finds the portal in her house, in the attic, comes through, and Jemima goes into the Bennett house to look around. She can't believe it. And Elizabeth shuts the door on her and locks it because Elizabeth doesn't want to be there anymore. And I will tell you more about it because this is one we don't want to give away, the plot. But it's just amazing watching her meet Darcy and you you learn all the backstories about the characters and what's really going on. It's all made up, of course. Very good. It's very fun. Everything just fits and, like could be canonical the jokes are really funny it's just yeah it's great yeah it really is it should be better known uh Mm -hmm. it's fantastic and those are the very very best ones and then there are a couple other ones that are that are pretty good that are enjoyable one is called austin land from 2013 and that's just kind of a very standard rom-com kind of beat for beat but the setting is special because it's about this american woman who's again obsessed with pride and prejudice and goes to an immersive uh jane austen world on like a sort of trip what what would you call that like a package a tri- trip or something uh, yeah well it's it's a it's a mansion that's been set up exactly like regency and uh, and the characters the actors who who inhabit it are the characters from various pri- uh, Jane Austen novels and basically you get what you pay for so if you pay the platinum tier you get you get the Mr. Darcy Right. And you get the, the full experience and the carriage and the everything. And, of course, the young woman who, who doesn't, she doesn't have a lot of money and she's scrimped and saved. So she's got the lowest tier. So she ends up getting the stable boy. Right. <laughs> yeah, so they introduce the class element to it. And it's, it really is pretty funny. And, and it's got uh, Brett from yeah. Flight of the Concords in it. Yes. And, and it's got Jennifer Coolidge in it of, you know, Legally Blonde fame. Uh, for, for, for one. She's yeah. fantastic. The young woman is Carrie Russell, who uh, is from the Americans, and she's a great little actor. And then the woman who runs Austinland is Jane Seymour, and uh, younger people might not know her, but she's very famous. She played Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman on TV, 
and she's been around for a long time, so she's like a, a really good stalwart. So yeah, so I think the movie's really mostly made by the actors who do it very well. Yeah, they really do. They do a very good job. It's, it's a clever, it's a clever um, conceit to the whole thing. Very fun. Another one is Becoming Jane, which Zoe hasn't seen. I have. It's from 2007. Stars Anne Hathaway as Jane Austen. And so it's kind of a, a, a fantasy, in a way, about how Jane Austen had the, the Tom LaFroy romance. And they, they big it up like, oh, this is her deathless love that she... Uh, and they, they were torn apart by economic realities. And then that's what caused her to write these books and so forth. Uh, and and made the, her themes about marriage and economics and that her characters would always get what they wanted at the end and which was all made up and it, it moved me at the time because I thought it was real <laughs> and then I read up and I go oh this didn't really happen Anne Hathaway I really like her she's a good actor and James McAvoy if you like him he's plays Tom Lefroy and so it, it's fine I you know it's a solid middle of the road Jane Austen thing. And then there is another BBC series, four-part series, called Death Comes to Pemberley, which is a murder mystery uh, from a book by P.D. James. P.D. James, who is a very famous British crime novelist, and uh, she wrote the Adam Daglish series, which is also a BBC series. She really, uh, P.D. James, really liked to focus on the psychology of characters, whatever. But you can just tell with this, she's really just taking the Pride and Prejudice story, the after-marriage of Elizabeth and Darcy sticking in a murder mystery, sticking in some conflict between Darcy and Elizabeth to resolve at the end, and uh, just doing a great job. It's not deep or anything, but it's a little bit like, don't you think it's a little bit like Lost in Austin in terms of you kind of get a little bit more of the backstory of the characters, a little bit of the underpinning that's different from what you would expect. Yeah, and it adds a spin and some psychology to some characters like Lydia, for example. Yeah, she has a really good job. I really like the way they handled Lydia yeah. and Wickham and their relationship, because they're still married at this point. And Wickham is a is a suspect. Right. And Lizzie is the sleuth, and she, she does all of the, figures out the whole thing with her forensic techniques. It's just really good. Well, I hope that was enlightening. Thanks for coming on this journey with us. At the very least, even if we talked about things that you've heard about before because Pride and Prejudice is so widely discussed. I hope that our enthusiasm might spur you to either read it, reread it, or rewatch something of Jane Austen's canon that you love. We don't know what we're doing next, but it's sure to be a firecracker. <laughs> All right. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Bye, everybody. If you want to get in touch with us, shoot us out an email to foiblespodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. Graham.